it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, December 22nd, 2011. This will be the final episode of Fighting for the Faith for the year 2011. More on that here in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. This is an education program, an education program in biblical thinking. Now, as I said just a second ago, this is going to be the final episode for 2011 for Fighting for the Faith. I've got family matters that I need to tend to along with the Christmas holiday. Um, Please be praying for my brother Mark. Uh, Today is the day he had his surgery uh, to remove a brain tumor. So um, that's part of what's happening in the uh, Roseboro compound right now, or uh, one of the major stories in the Roseboro compound. So Pray for uh, my brother Mark for his his recovery, and as soon as we know anything regarding whether or not uh, his tumor is cancerous or non-cancerous or whatever is going on, we will uh, let you know. Um, I do want to thank you all. I want to thank everybody who's uh, helped support Fighting for the Faith and to uh, make this program possible by supporting us financially over this year. Uh, we could not be doing what we do without your help. And uh, I just want to say thank you. Uh, again, this is the last episode of the year. We're going to resume uh, normal broadcast schedule at the beginning of uh, 2012. So what we got on deck today, we have a great lecture from Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. And uh, it's gonna, he's continuing his uh, series on Martin Luther's commentary on Paul's epistle to the Galatian churches. And so we're going to just dive right into it without any further ado. Y'all have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Here's Dr. Rosenblatt. Uh, Again, we're doing uh, something here very prosaic and plain. We're looking at Luther's uh, commentary, greater commentary on the book of Galatians, and treating it as a great book. So it's not high-flying and wondrous, but uh, pretty plain. And uh, if we can get that done, I think it'll be worth it. I was saying to someone before class, I think it was, other than the small catechism, the greatest book he ever wrote. Uh, He disagreed, but I still think I'm right. Um, This is the mature Luther. This is not the Luther of the 95 Theses or any of that. Uh, Probably the closest we get to it early in his career was the summer of 1520 when he wrote The Freedom of the Christian, and uh, then he was getting it. But in Galatians, uh, he's got it. He knows after a long period of study and all sorts of hard work, finally he arrives at this. We're going to attempt to get through chapter 3. If we don't make it, um, then I'm just going to turn you to the fuller notes if you want them from New Reformation Press. You can get them in PDF format, complete what I have in front of me. Uh, What you have is very foreshortened. All right, what's he going to tackle here? Verse 19, why then the law? Answer, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Question that was being asked when we were here the last hour, if the law doesn't justify, then why was it given? Or the Jewish Christians, why does God prod and burden us prior with the law if it doesn't give life? Again, the workers who come in late to the vineyard and get full pay. Um, Luther says, as soon as grace in Christ is proclaimed by the gospel, the murmuring starts. Um, Naturally, the Jew, the Jewish Christians become indignant and complain. If the Gentiles obtain all the treasures without any labor or trouble, what's going on here? 
Luther says reason does this and is brought up short. It understands only the law. But Paul answers, the law was given on account of transgressions. Reason is offended when it hears this. Um, but Luther says so much the less for reason. Uh, Paul suffered affronts like this, and so do we in our day, he says. Nevertheless, we must speak right out in order to rescue hearers from the snares of the devil. Uh, pay no attention to how our doctrine is abused by the rabble. Keep comforting uh, suffering consciences. Uh, Luther says, just as the apostles, we're not apostles, but just as they did this, we're called to do the same thing. And he says, the grumbling, if the law does not justify its worthless or nothing, is fallacious. When we deny that the law justifies, we're not destroying it and we're not condemning it. But we do give a different answer to the question, why then the law? The law has its proper function, but it isn't to justify sinners. If I transfer it from its proper place or function where it's a good thing and move it over into the column with regard to justification, he says, I don't just uh, distort the law, I distort everything. So, Paul says the law was added because of transgressions. Um, this disease, says Luther, is the highest and greatest empire of the devil in the whole universe, the head of the serpent. It peddles itself as if it's the height of sanctity, which it isn't. Uh, in these matters, uh, things must be kept distinct, and the uses must not be confused, or there will be sheer and utter confusion. Luther gives a half dozen examples from our life in the world. The law must not usurp for itself an alien function to justify sinners. It must not be allowed to do it. He, he said, we monks never imagined these things that had to do with Christ and why he died and what it did. He speaks of a double use of the law. First, the civil use. He's spoken of it before. This is its proper sphere. To bridle civil transgressions, to hinder sins, carnal, rebellious, obstinate individuals. That doesn't mean it justifies. If I avoid murdering or committing adultery or stealing, I don't do this voluntarily or by love of virtue. I do it because I'm afraid of the sword and the executioner. So the law serves, serves as ropes or chains restraining a lion or a bear. But it isn't righteousness. It's really an indication of our unrighteousness. And he says insanity. It, law is necessary. It was instituted by God. It prevents uh, the course of the gospel from being hindered. But Paul is not discussing the civil use of the law here. He's discussing the theological or pedagogical use of the law. That is, it is right when it condemns and even increases man's transgressions. This, says Luther, is the primary work of the law, to reveal and in, even increase transgressions, to reveal to you and me our sin, blindness, misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate, our contempt of God, death, hell, judgment, the wrath of God. He said, that's what the law does. This is completely unknown, he said, to hypocrites and also to the sophists in the university. Uh, think of the scene at Sinai where God appears in all of his spectacle and law and drove the Israelites to desperation and fear of death. Luther retells this story. So the use of the law is beneficial and necessary. Um, the, it's to speak to the one who has a presumption of his own righteousness, a relying on his own good works. This causes immense pride, trust in self, smugness, hate of God, contempt of grace, and so forth and so forth. The proclamation of free grace, free forgiveness of sins, doesn't enter people like that. They have a solid wall of presumption of righteousness built to keep it out. So it's a huge and horrible monster and needs to be broken, and God needs a huge and powerful hammer to break it. We call it the law. 
God cannot soften and humble this man any other way than by the law. Again, he illustrates from Sinai. So, the law here in its proper use is a hammer that crushes rocks, a fire, a wind, a great and mighty earthquake that overturns mountains. It crushes the heart to the point of despair. He again uses Sinai to illustrate. Pastors, teachers, learn this doctrine of the true proper use of the law carefully. Um, If we don't watch this, it'll be wiped out. We urge this doctrine, but there are very few, even amongst the evangelicals of that day, who understand the use of the law. Um, Many have defected from the pure doctrine of the gospel to laws. Um, Don't teach Christ, distort the word of God, but what we teach with regard to the proper or theological use of the law shows, uh, or the civil use, the civil use of the law doesn't show the grace of God or righteousness in life, but only wrath. Uh, used correctly, the law does nothing but reveal sin, work wrath, accuse, and terrify. The gospel, on the other hand, is a light that illumines hearts and makes them alive. It discloses what grace and the mercy of God are, what the forgiveness of sins and blessing and life and eternal salvation are, and how they're given. When we distinguish the two this way, we attribute to each its proper use. Uh, We find none of this in the books of the monks, the canonists, ancient or even recent theologians. There's a remarkable silence about this um, in the schools and the churches uh, and a dangerous situation for consciences. If the gospel isn't distinguished from the law, Christian doctrine cannot be kept sound. But when the distinction is recognized, the true meaning of justification is made clear. So it was added, the law was added because, the transgre- because of transgressions, so that they might be increased and made visible. And, says Luther, that's in fact what happens. A person can't endure the judgment of God, can't flee. He falls into hate and blasphemy against God. Uh, when there was no trouble, he was some kind of big saint. When sin and death are revealed, he wants God not to exist. So the law not only discloses and reveals sin, it increases and inflames it. It's magnified by the law. So Paul again replies to the question, if law doesn't justify, what's it for? As a civic restraint first and second, it produces in the hearers a knowledge of themselves as sinners. What's the value of this humiliation, this wounding? Well, it's a preparation for the good news, grace in Christ. God, says Luther, is the God of the humble, the miserable, the afflicted, the oppressed, the desperate, those who have been brought down to nothing. And it's the nature of God to exalt the humble, feed the hungry, enlighten the blind, comfort the miserable and afflicted, to justify sinners. This is his natural and proper work. So when the conscience has been terrified by the law, finally there's a place for the doctrine of the gospel. Um, The law has done its work. And Luther said, when the law has done its work many times, people look for more more laws as a way out. They make promises. I'll improve my life. I'll join a monastery. I'll live frugally. But unless in our fear and terror we take hold of Christ who died for us, says Luther, your salvation's over and done with. Instead of adding more laws, listen to Christ. Come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. And Luther says, when the law does this, it's being used well and correctly. So in a weird way, the law does contribute to justification, not because it justifies, but because it impels one to find the promise of grace in Christ. Then he has a section on till the offspring should come. And I'll do this in a very foreshortened way, but the full outline is available to you. Paul does not make the law permanent. He said it was added to the promise because of transgressions, uh, to restrain us in society, uh, but also to reveal our sin theologically. This would not be forever, but for a certain time. For how long? Until the offspring, capital O, comes. 
That is, till Christ. And he means Christ revealed or known to us where we grab him in his saving office, his dying for us, his bleeding. And he said, then the law stops. It's done its work. Uh, One must say then, stop law. You've caused enough terror and sorrow. The offspring has come. Now he says the law still clings tenaciously to the conscience. And we have great difficulties. We're in need of brothers who comfort us, uh, ones who are, uh, we who are oppressed and bruised by the law. We imagined that we could fulfill this, he said, by monasticism. It uh, promised that if any would be, anyone would be saved, uh, those in the orders would. But it was an occasion for despair to many people, didn't deliver on its promises. Um, I think I'll, ordained by angels through an intermediary. Um, Luther's theme here is the law was but for a time, the gospel is forever. Um, (laughs) The whole world hostile to the law, the flesh cannot do otherwise than be hostile to the law. Uh, It's insane to hate God and his law so much, then to assert we're justified by the law. He calls that insanity. Uh, evidence that the sophists are blind and that they only understand what he calls civic righteousness but not theological righteousness, not what Paul is talking about here. Um, The law does not justify. If it were submissive to my feelings and it approved my hypocrisy and boasting, uh, my own righteousness, then it would be joyous or sweet or precious. I would need no God. I could be my own God. Um... And a little bit about free will. The intermediary implies more than one. The function of an intermediary is to reconcile two parties who were once at peace and now are hostile to one another. Moses was an intermediary between the law and the people. He again illustrates with Sinai and the Israelites. (coughs) Uh, How Moses even had to put on a mask. Uh, The people were so terrified So the choice is, take hold of the blessed offspring. If you do not, you must have Moses with his veil as your intermediary. Um, What do you think, says Luther, would have happened if the law had been given without Moses? People would have been crushed with terror, perhaps perished immediately. So Moses comes into the breach as the intermediary, makes a mask, puts on a veil, and still he cannot remove the terror of the conscience. There was need for another, a better mediator, Jesus Christ. This doesn't change the sound of the law or cover it with a veil. He sets himself against the wrath of the law and abolishes it. In his own body, he satisfies the law. He says to me in the gospel, do not be afraid. Do not run away. I take your place. I make satisfaction to the law for you. Luther sums up our situation. We're offenders, guilty, can't flee. God and his law, we have offended. God cannot forgive it, and we can't remove it. Nor can God revoke his law. Christ steps in as the mediator, reconciles the parties, cancels our debt, sets it aside, says Paul, by nailing it to the cross, By doing it, he disarmed the principalities set against us, made a public example of them, triumphing over them, Colossians 2. The Galatians passage is powerful, he says, for refuting the so-called righteousness of the law. It teaches us that in the matter of justification, the law must be removed as far as possible. Learn the true doctrine of the law. It doesn't justify It has exactly the opposite effect. It shows us a wrathful God, reveals our sin, increases it, terrifies us, causes us to hate the law, and run away from and hate God. He said, is this somehow being righteous through the law? It's actually sinning against the law, and in a couple of ways. We can't listen to it, we act contrary to it, and we hate it. And the author, God himself. So, this is a summary of the argument that Paul based on the word intermediary. 
Uh, verse 21, is the law then against the promises? God forbid. For if there had, has been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. Earlier, Paul had said that the law does not justify. Then the reply he got was, well, then let's abolish it. Paul answers, certainly not. It has its usefulness. It discloses sin and increases it. Reply to Paul, then the law conflicts with the promises. Paul answers, quite the contrary. Paying attention to the law, the promise is held back even more, but the certainly not is First, because God is not moved to make his promise by our worthiness, merits, or good works. Um, and secondly, although the law discloses and increases sin, it's still not against the promises. It's for them. It humbles a man. It makes him yearn and seek for grace, usually before he knows it. It forces him to confess there's nothing of worth in him at all, that he's truly miserable and damned. Then, says law, the law has performed its function. Its time has come to an end. So the law is not against the promises, first of all, because the promise doesn't depend on the law, and second, because in its greatest use, the law makes us groan, sigh, and seek the hand of the mediator, makes the troubled heart thirst for Christ. So the law is not against the promises. For if a law had been given which could make alive, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Paul contends, no law, whatever, can make us alive. It only kills. My works don't justify me. My works don't placate God's wrath. They arouse it. My works don't achieve righteousness. They remove it. My works don't make me alive. They kill me. So the words of Paul here are clear. Um, unknown to the papists, but still clear. They're chanted in all the churches, but the teaching and life in the churches are the opposite of what Paul actually writes. What we teach here affirms that these words of Paul are true. No law makes us alive. We must distinguish the law from righteousness sharply, and that distinction between the function of the law and the function of the gospel keeps all theology in its correct use. Uh, Paul thought this, you get this one and it's going to spread like uh, waves out of a stone thrown in a lake. This enables believers to judge doctrine aright. Uh, the papists intermingle and confuse law and gospel. Um, but Paul here teaches at some length how the law does its work and eliminates human righteousness. Makes Christ and his blessings then become sweet. If there were some law that could grant life, then righteousness would be on the basis of law. That, however, is contrary to Scripture, which consigns all things to sin. It's impossible for any law or any work to exist that could justify or make us righteous. Our opponents, again, he says, are blind and deaf here. Where, question, where does Scripture consign all things to sin? Paul answers, Genesis 3.15, Genesis 22.18, and wherever the promise of Christ is found in the scriptures, wherever he is uh, predicated or uh, foreseen, there you have righteousness, blessing, salvation, and life, and you don't get it from the law. So, this means that in its very promises, scripture consigns all men to sin and the curse. It's not the final word, but Paul is arguing that it's a necessary word for us to even be interested in anything else, uh, first to be crushed by the law. Um, applies not only to those who sin against the law, but those who are subject to the law and even outside the law. Um, and Luther adds, it includes monks, hermits, Carthusians, with their profession and their vows, everything consigned to sin. In other words, whatever is outside of Christ and the promise, with no exceptions, is consigned by Paul to sin. The conclusion, Luther, the proposition faith in Christ alone justifies. Same conclusion we find over and over and over again. 
The law cannot and does not make alive and wasn't given for that purpose. If the law neither justifies nor makes alive, then works don't justify either. And we're left with faith in Christ justifies. That what was promised to faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. After consigning all things to sin, um, until what was promised had been given. And he talks about uh, the coming of Christ. And to whom are these uh, merits of Christ given? All believers in Christ, the blessed offspring. Um, In the person of Christ, all of that stuff being consigned to sin is canceled in him. Um, Justification through faith alone in Christ and apart from works. 23, now before faith came, uh, here Paul is continuing that the law has a place, useful and necessary, added because of transgressions. Doesn't mean the chief purpose of the law was only to cause death and damnation. The chief use of the law is to reveal our death, the enormity of our sin, in order that we might be terrified and humbled. But in such a way that God may out of that be able to make us alive. He kills the presumption of righteousness in us, Uh, by the law, and he uses this killing by the law, this death, for a good purpose, to give us free life in Christ. So the law as hammer and fire and overthrowing mountains and crushing is in order that we may be brought to nothing and tremble and thirst for mercy. Before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed. Function of the law to keep us confined like a prison. Um, Luther says this is a great analogy. The imprisoned criminal hates jail, wishes he could destroy it. But he is kept there, he is forced to refrain from doing evil, civil use. Not out of goodwill, not out of love of righteousness. He doesn't despise and hate his sins and crimes. He hates his prison wants to return to a life of crime. Such, says Luther, is the power of the law. Uh, We comply with the law out of fear of punishment, unwillingly, with indignation. What kind of righteousness is that? Um, But the law has this benefit. Even though hearts remain wicked, it restrains thieves, murderers, and public criminals to some extent, at least outwardly. But the theological use of the law, the true use of the law, um, as a prison, uh, it discloses a, a man's sin and threatens death and wrath. And we can't run away and we can't find comfort within ourselves. Luther says the law is a prison both politically and theologically. He said that civilly it restrains the wicked to some extent. Spiritually it reveals to us our sin and terrifies us. This is the real function of the law, but it's not permanent. The law's custody ends at the arrival of faith in Christ. Now, once we come to faith in Christ, Luther's just glorious in saying that the law must be done with. Um, The problem is that we're not all believer, any one of us. There's part of us that isn't and won't end till we die. So we hear the law preached to us and the gospel preached to us because there's part of us that remains Adam, you know. Hmm? So, again, on the distinction of this law and gospel, we're shut up under the law, not forever, but to bring us to Christ, who is the end of the law. How are these seemingly contradictory things uh, brought together? Especially during times of temptation, it's very difficult, says Luther. We fear and fly from the wrath of God. And to trust in his mercy and goodness in Jesus Christ is very difficult for us, especially in times of despair, denial, believing only the law. He uses Cain to illustrate. So in times like this, we must turn our eyes away from the time of the law and look to Christ as the fulfillment of it. The, be- the being confined or kept under the law uh, isn't speculative 
Uh, these are references to true spiritual terrors, uh, real anxieties. The conscience, he says, is a delicate thing. But this is not forever. It's only till faith should be revealed. That is Christ fulfilling the law in our place. So the counsel that Luther's recommending is do not despair. Be comforted and encouraged in this way. You're being afflicted in this prison in order to recreate you through his blessed offspring, to make you alive in Jesus Christ. Again, he says the papist sectarians know nothing of this. Anyone who says he loves the law is lying, does not know what he is saying. The thief who loved his prison, his shackles would be insane, out of his mind. We love the law as much as a murderer loves his prison. How can we be justified then by the law? Rather, we've been kept under restraint until faith should be revealed. That is, when Christ came. And he said these are true both historically and personally. Historically, it refers to the time of Jesus Christ in history, coming, abrogating the law, bringing liberty, and bringing eternal life to light. Personally, he says, it happens to every Christian every day. A time of the law and a time of grace and constant alternation, an inner war, because the old Adam is still in us. Uh, We may not fall into coarse sins, uh, but Luther also includes impatience, grumbling, hatred, blasphemy against God, a being at war within, a fighting back, says Paul. This time of the law is in the Christian throughout his whole lifetime, but also the time of grace uh, refers to being given the announcement that Christ's death is enough. We gather a little courage to say to the law, you have no jurisdiction over me anymore. Your jurisdiction was ended by Christ and his dying and his rising for me. So the divided Christian, um, to the extent he's flesh, he's under the law. To the extent he's spirit, he's under the gospel, and they're at war with one another. But the time of the flesh or the law is not forever. Christ was and is the end of that. And the time of grace is forever. Christ, having died once for all, will never die again. So, says Luther, pay close attention to Paul's words here. For these words of life, comfort, strengthen strengthen afflicted consciences. Fear of God's holiness will be present in the Christian because sin is still present in us. But it must not be left alone or by itself. Or uh, it becomes a servile and despairing fear. Cain, Judas. We are to turn our eyes again to Christ and in being turned to him, pastor, teacher, whoever, friend, then we will not just fear God, but begin to love him. And even that, Luther doesn't make the truth of it turn on whether we love him. That's a minor theme. The emphasis on Christ loving us and delivering us, not on our response. Um, I have to have, argue that with all other brands of Christians. So, the law was laid down not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous, 1 Timothy 1. Um, And there are two kinds of unrighteous men, those who are to be justified and those who are not to be justified. The latter are restrained by the civic use, but Paul isn't dealing with that here. It's the former, disciplined by the theological use of the law for a time, till the coming of Christ and his fulfilling it and giving us By simple faith, all of his fulfillment of the law. We will have nothing to say at the judgment except Christ and him crucified. And we won't need to say any more. Just that. That's a time for shutting up. Just that and then shut up. Don't add a single syllable to it. It's all we've got. Luther's correct. It's all we've got. All right, Um, so that the law was our custodian until until Christ came, 
the schoolmaster uh, necessary for the education and training of young boys? Just show me one boy or pupil who loves his schoolmaster. <laughs> Did the Jews love Moses warmly, do what he commanded? Hardly. More than once they were willing to stone him. It's impossible for a pupil to love his schoolmaster. Um, the, the pedagogos word in Greek is somebody the father hired to follow the son around during the day and make sure he did his lessons and associated with the right, and he has a stick in his hand. This is not a 16-year-old tutor in algebra. Hmm? No, no, no. No, no, no. This is with rod in hand, okay? So the, the law was our custodian or schoolmaster or pedagogos until Christ came. And Luther says, no boy loves his schoolmaster. Still, schoolmasters are necessary to instruct uh, and chastise the boy or he'll come to ruin. Luther elaborates a little bit on the horrible schoolmasters that they had in Germany. And he had learned it firsthand as being a student. Um, I won't digress into ed theory here, but it was the worst. But still, the schoolmaster is necessary for a predetermined time. And that it will work for the boy's good. He is the heir and the future king. And uh, Paul says, the law was our schoolmaster until Christ came. Um, what kind of a schoolmaster would, would it be who merely annoyed and whipped a boy but taught him nothing? Those are the kind of teachers, we, says Luther, we've had in Germany. But the law is not such a teacher. It's driving us to Christ. It's driving us to Christ. The way a good teacher disciplines and trains pupils in reading and writing with the purpose that uh, they, will might, they, they might bring them to a knowledge of the liberal arts and other good things. So Paul here again shows the true use of the law. It doesn't justify hypocrites. They remain outside of Christ by their own stiffness of heart. But those who've been frightened by the use of the law find that it does not finally leave them in death. It delivers them to Christ, the one who fulfilled the law for us all. In order, says Paul, that we might be justified by faith in him without works. So the law is a schoolmaster until Christ comes. And he comes not as another schoolmaster to the second power, but as the justifier and the savior. So that we may be freely justified through faith in him, not through works. Same lesson again. When a man feels the power of the law, he neither understands nor believes this. Um, and often says, I've lived damnably. I've broken all of God's commandments. I've been sentenced to death. It got, if God will give me a few more years, I'll improve my life and live in a holy way. Luther says, nonsense. Absolutely nonsense. Uh, it's an abuse of the true use of the law because it loses sight of Christ and looks for another lawgiver. This was true, he said, of many of us monks. It was not until Christ should come uh, not with a new law, not Christ the lawgiver, but Christ the propitiator and the rescuer. So a true use of the law humbles us, brings us to acknowledge our sin, so that we may come to Christ and be justified freely by faith. Faith isn't a law, it isn't a work, it's a confidence that takes hold of Christ who is the end of the law. A, a grabbing of him and his benefits, and the corollary is giving up on the law to rescue, because it never does. Now, do we fight that fight once? <laughs> no, we fight it over and over and over and over and over. Christ's hold is greater than our hold, thank God. Hmm? But this battle goes on with the old Adam in us and with the new creature all the time. Here, faith is defined in a way that was never defined uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. Faith there is, I believe whatever the church teaches. And here, it's confidence in Christ, particularly his dying for us, particularly in his rescuing, or what uh, theological students call his soteriological work, his saving work, his priestly work. Not any old Christ, but Christ particularly dying in our stead rescuing. 
Uh, this, says Luther, is uh, if the law does this and drives us to it, it has done its, its work. Okay. Um, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. We're free from the law, out of prison, away from our custodian. The law should no longer uh, be allowed to terrify us without going somewhere, that is, to Christ. What Christ did for us, he assumed a human nature, abrogated the law, delivered the entire race from sin and from eternal death. So there is no law anymore in column A. Rather, we live securely and happily under Christ who reigns in us sweetly, not as a lawgiver. Where the Lord is, there is freedom, 2 Corinthians 3. Were we able to perfectly take hold of Christ, uh, that custodian would have no jurisdiction over us. But we still have the law in our members at war with the law in our mind, and it interferes so we can't take hold of Christ perfectly. The defect isn't in Christ, it's in us, who have not yet shed the flesh, and the sin will cling to it as long as we live. Uh, So we're partly free of the law and partly, the old Adam, still under the law because we're not just believers, we're split, Romans 7. But according to our conscience, we are completely free of the law. Uh, The schoolmaster must not menace us with terrors and nothing else, with threats and nothing else, with captivity and nothing else. The conscience... Viewing Christ the crucified, who abolished all the claims of the law on the conscience, conscience remains unmoved. This is the daily fight. Christ is greater than the law accusing me. Christ is the end of the law. Christ fulfilled the law for me. I'm in him, and he's got a good grip on me. According to our feelings, still, sin still clings to our flesh and accuses and troubles the conscience. It's going to be the way it is, Uh, but um, this mortification of the flesh and so forth is not the last word. Rather, we've received the first fruits of the Spirit. If I look to Christ, I, I sort of get it, and if I look at my flesh, I don't, at my old Adam. I'm saying this, says Luther, so that you may know how to reply to the objection, all right, then why should I listen to the gospel? What need is there for the sacrament or of absolution? If you consider Christ, law and sin have really been abolished, but there's still remnants of sin in all of us. We're not completely leavened. The flesh, the world, and the devil don't permit faith to be anywhere near perfect. We do have the first fruits of the Spirit, have begun to be leavened, but Christ, through his word, every day comes to go against what our Um, conscience is feeling from the law and to say I am greater you're mine I've conquered it you belong to me for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith Paul says Luther always has these words on his lips by faith in faith on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ and he doesn't have the words because you are circumcised because you listen to the law because you keep its works but instead, through faith in Christ Jesus. The law doesn't create sons, much less do human traditions, says Luther. The law cannot beget men into a new birth. Um, Rather, it brings to view the old birth. It does prepare us, however, for that new birth, which takes place through faith in Christ Jesus, and not through the law. That faith in Christ, not the law, creates sons. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on on Christ. There are two ways, says Luther, of putting on Christ, according to the law and according to the gospel. According to the law was that old strain, you might have heard it, imitation of Christ. To put on Christ is to imitate Christ, um, follow his example, his virtues, do what he did, suffer what he suffered. That's not putting on Christ. According to the gospel, it isn't the imitation of Christ. It's a new birth, a new creation, 
I put on Christ himself, or the Father puts Christ onto me, putting on Christ's innocence and righteousness and saving life and spirit. We wear an old garment from Adam. Uh, We need to be changed from sons of Adam into sons of God, and that's what happens by our rebirth and renewal in baptism, Titus 3.5. This is what it means to put on Christ properly, to receive him freely. Uh, We have no part in it all other than the you're doing it to an infant, if the ushers get the water temp wrong, he just cries. But no virtues, none of that. Christ becomes our garment. It isn't a righteousness of the law. It isn't a righteousness of our works. Uh, Christ, the Father, has given us to be our justifier, our life giver, our redeemer. So to put on Christ according to the gospel isn't to put on the law or works. It's an inestimable gift, free forgiveness of sin, free righteousness, free peace with God, free comfort, free joy in the Holy Spirit, free salvation, free life, Christ himself. And he tackles the fanatical spirits who insult baptism. I won't do that, but they deserve it. So it's not by imitating Christ. It's by new birth, and God gives us Christ fully and freely by baptism. As a garment, not as a sign, as a garment. So baptism is a very powerful and effective thing. 28a, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. Luther says, and other offices could be added. Magistrate, subject, professor, listener, teacher, pupil, lady, servant. Social stations uh, amount to nothing in Christ. Uh, And the phrase, there is neither Jew, vigorously abolishes the law. The new man, Christ, is put on, and um, the disciple of Moses, the the one subject to the laws, who brags of his circumcision, observes the correct form of worship commanded in the law, etc., goes nowhere. Where Christ is put on, There is no Jew in this sense any longer. Christ has abolished whatever laws there are in Moses or fulfilled them. So the conscience should not be tyrannized by them. Um, Nor Greek, the wisdom and righteousness of the Gentiles. Um, Luther lists many endowed with excellent, even heroic virtues and their brilliant accomplishments for the good of the commonwealth, but in the sight of God or in the matter of justification amounts to nothing. What does matter then? The garment of Christ, which was put on us in baptism. The stations in life don't determine higher or lower. What counts here is um, being clothed in Christ. And then he charges the Galatians, the false apostles are seducing you when they teach the laws necessary for salvation. They're snatching you back from the great glory of your new birth and sonship. They're calling you back to your old birth, to a miserable slavery to the law. You're being called back by them from being free sons of God back to slaves of law. Um, And Luther calls down fire on it uh, following Paul here. None of these amount to anything to merit grace or attain eternal life. Anyone justified is justified on account of Christ and his work for them. He has placated the wrath of God by his blood, by his being the Savior. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Magnificent words, says Luther. In the world, there's great difference in inequality among people, and if there weren't, chaos would result. But... It must be observed carefully. In Christ, where there is no law, there's no distinction between persons. The same Christ who justifies Peter, who justifies Paul, who justified all the saints, we have too, you and I, all believers, all baptized infants. Here the conscience knows nothing of the law. Okay. All right, in Christ Jesus. And says Luther, if Christ is lost sight of, everything's over. 
Then a little uh, another attack on the uh, fanatics of the day, the Anabaptists, um, and how it should be done, uh, the preaching through the external word and Christ preached as the fulfillment of the law and th through faith everything is made ours and he takes off on the fanatics for a while and then the last if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise short statement transfers all the glories of Lebanon to the desert makes the Gentiles the offspring of Abraham the fatherhood and the blessing promised to Abraham not just to Jews who believe in Christ but to Gentiles as well. Why? The basis is because we Gentiles believe and because by faith we receive the blessing of the offspring, Christ, offspring of Abraham. So scripture calls even us sons of Abraham and heirs, all one in Christ and all based on the offspring of Abraham, Christ himself. So the promise applies also to us Gentiles. The Christ who is promised here is ours as well. So Abraham was not to be the father not only was was to be the father not only of the Jewish nation but of many nations, the heir not of one kingdom but of the entire world, all in Christ Jesus and all free. We made it. We made it. Now, the plan is that I will in the coming 3 Sundays go through chapter 4. And that's the end of volume 26. Um, so three Sundays, I'll try to divide it up. We'll get through chapter four. Then if you want to do five and six, we can do it later at another time. It took me all summer to do one through four. <clears throat> and all of these notes will be available to you, as I said, if you want them through New Reformation Press.